0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm joined by Jennifer Shepard Hughes, author of Church of the Dead The Epidemic of 1576 and the Birth of Christianity in the Americas, published by NYU Press in 2021. Dr. Shepard Hughes is Associate Professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Riverside. Jennifer Shepard Hughes, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. I'm very grateful to be here. Well, thank
0: you for being here. Um, So to start, um, would you please tell us a bit about yourself, your scholarly background, um, and how you became interested in this topic?
1: Yes. So I am a historian of religion, and um, I focus on Latin American religion and Latin American Christianity. And within that, Uh, I specialize in religion in Mexico, and I have a rather broad sweep. So my work really transcends sort of many centuries and spans from the pre-invasion before the Spanish invasion up to the present even. So, and um, my interest in this subject dates quite far back, I would say. I lived in Latin America as a child and in Brazil in my adolescence, and those experiences, uh, with especially living in Catholic communities, were very formative to me and, and how I understand the world.
0: Just describe the, uh, so the 1576 epidemic. So what regions of the Americas are we looking at? Um, who was impacted? How many people were impacted? Um, in yeah. what ways were they impacted and how long did it last?
1: Yes so this epidemic that I am focusing on in this text kind of comes at the at the end you could say of this these waves of epidemic cataclysm in the 16th century. so there are a series of, of epidemics beginning obviously um, with the arrival of Europeans, the arrival of the Spanish. This particular epidemic has its epicenter in Mexico, although there are some, there's some evidence to suggest that it really um, extends even um, into parts of South America and north into um, parts of uh, Mexico that today form part of the United States. Over the course of the 16th century, The cataclysmic loss due to colonial violence and epidemic disease brings the population of the Americas from close to 100 million people um, uh, down to an extraordinarily um, smaller fraction. In central Mexico, this particular epidemic brings the population of Mexico to its lowest point at um, at that time. Uh, reduced from, let's say, Greater Mexico, maybe up to twenty-two million, down uh, over the course of the sixteenth century, culminating in this epidemic, to about two million. So it's it's um, cataclysmic in in scope, and um,
0: has repercussions that reverberate uh, outward. Right. Um, so you refer to the uh, Mexican Mortandad. Uh, throughout the book, and the cocolisle, Um, and then you use this very evocative phrase, um, or almost sentence, that you discovered in uh, your research, uh, that, quote, blood emerged from our noses. Um, So if you could sort of describe uh, the mortandad, the cocolisle, and why sort of blood coming from the noses, this very evocative image, um, really sort of surfaced in your research.
1: Yes. So the the term mortandad is one that appears very strongly in the colonial record from the 16th century, in the Spanish record. And it's a word that's been translated um, in various ways. Uh, the great death, the great dying. I've translated it as a death event. Um, and it's used to describe various waves of cataclysmic death throughout the 16th century, but it's also used to uh, describe specific uh, crises or or incidents. The term cocolizli is a Nahuatl word that is used to describe um, epidemics um, throughout the colonial period. That word is really coined after the arrival of Spanish, after the Spanish invasion maybe uh, we first see it in the record around the middle of the 16th century in what we might term the sort of first coccolithly pandemic and then the pandemic that i look at at the sec as the the second pandemic so this word is a sort of generic word for illness that then takes on specific meaning in in relation to this um this particular pandemic the uh The other phrase that appears in indigenous sources relating to this pandemic, this this particular epidemic, is this term, this Nahua term, we bleed from our noses. And that refers to the kind of final, um, most distressing symptom, um, which often was the the final symptom before people died from, from this illness. And there was something very powerful about the the collective um, phrase, right? That this is a collective form of of affliction uh, in we bleed from our noses. And so some scholars have suggested that this actually was the most, um, was the sort of name that was most used by Nahua communities, the communities that were suffering from it themselves. And what's also powerful is that you see what I would say are sort of glyphic or pictographic representations in indigenous sources that show um, indigenous people um, or or individuals bleeding from their nose. And that becomes a sort of pictographic uh, representation of this particular pandemic, this particular epidemic. And the motif of blood then becomes really important to my interpretation and how I'm thinking about this disease, both looking at how blood is represented in indigenous authored sources, and then also looking at how Spanish missionaries are thinking about blood.
0: Uh, Sort of sticking with the mortandad. So how did the mortandad impact um, the indigenous societies in Mexico, um, sort of the Spanish colonial societies, um, and ultimately sort of the ways they interacted
1: So one of the things as a colonial uh, as a historian of colonial Mexico is that we know as as historians that cataclysmic demographic loss was part of what defined these centuries at the same time not that many scholars or historians have really tried to examine what that meant for a specific communities and how that affected worldviews, religious views, religious practices, epistemologies, ways of understanding um, who who, uh, we are as a community, for example, or uh, the course of history, how we relate to the divine or to the sacred. And of course, I brought specifically religious questions to that. So the impact one of the things I note is that the impact of these periods of loss was so profound that they're actually legible in the geological record. So it's leg it's legible in terms of we could say kind of the earth, the earth's surface that kind of it's recorded. The loss is so is so extreme that it's it's recorded in the earth's surface. What it meant for individual communities or for say Greater Mexico overall is harder to determine because in a way this is a kind of one way of thinking about it is sort of a hyper object, right? It's so huge and so vast that sometimes it it's not always legible in in, say, the documentary record. And we have to kind of begin to imagine or piece together what it what might have meant. I think one of the very important things that historians need to remember, of course, is that most you know, that indigenous people continued to be the majority population of Mexico through the colonial period. So even though the loss was pronounced, there are still um, surviving communities, and that in fact, even at the beginning of the seventeenth century, those communities, the population is beginning to recover. So I try to probe in this book how communities tried to reconstitute themselves in the aftermath of crisis and also strategize and plan a future for themselves. So not just trying to hold on what they, to what they had, but actually trying to project themselves into the future. In terms of relations with the Spanish, early in this epidemic, Spanish missionaries especially saw themselves as sort of, they saw themselves as protectors, they saw themselves as nurses, they saw themselves as healers. They felt that they had a kind of God-given capacity and vocation to intervene on behalf of indigenous people and mitigate the worst impacts of the disease. One of the things that's noteworthy or that I really worked to come to sort of some interpretation of is the way in which we see indigenous communities and written um, histories and complaints articulating a sense of abandonment that the church had abandoned them in a moment of crisis. So as it turns out, the scope of death was so difficult that actually at a certain point, these missionaries began to kind of give up on um, very shortly, maybe within two or three months, in terms of providing the kind of frontline nursing care, they, they began to withdraw from that vocation. And so, emerging from that, there's a kind of, I would say, rival vision for the church, what the church is, one that is more Spanish, and one that is emerging from indigenous communities. So, in the wake of this crisis, these competing visions are very pronounced. And I try to explore the the, um, precise nature of those um, distinct visions.
0: Yeah, I I think you did a great job of that. Um, I I have a question later in the interview about how sort of your work has complicated some of these narratives. Um, But before uh, moving too far ahead of ourselves, um, as you suggested in your last answer, religion is sort of central to this book. and while Christianity certainly is, is sort of the dominant religion um, that is is discussed, it's, it's certainly not the only, and obviously Christianity is a, a broad term, right? It doesn't necessarily describe um, much of uh, what you studied. Um, so so what kind of religion or religions were forged um, during this epidemic, during this demographic catastrophe? Um, you, you make some allusions to sort of the settler church, Um but you also obviously talk about uh, talk a lot about how indigenous sort of um, lifeways, religions, um, how they interacted with um, sort of Spanish Catholicism in pretty profound ways that um, one can still sort of see the remnants of even today.
1: Yes, one of the questions that really has driven my work for more than two decades is the process by which. People throughout Latin America who were subject to European invasion and imperial rule, the process by which they labored upon this imposed religion, right, labored upon Christianity to make it something that was usable, to make it something that was to them sacred or holy or powerful. And in my work, I've Try to document that labor, which is a labor of centuries. Because of course, every generation has to um, reanimate the religion, right? It's the, the, uh, to sustain it, to um, redefine it, to rework it, so that it continues to be relevant and meaningful. And so my work has really tried over, uh, you know, in different periods of time, including the present, to make visible that labor. And so I'm more interested, for example, in the labor of uh, indigenous Catholic communities, say, communities that understand themselves to be Catholic and their labor, um, their religious labor as Christians than I am, for example, in in Spanish missionary labor, right? So I sort of shift that um, lens and that site of agency, you could say religious agency somewhat. And so um, I think that we see in Mexico, of course, every part of Latin America, these dynamics are different, and then different subject communities have different relationships to Christianity, and there are communities that are, um, that are, that that there are communities that discern in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries that Christianity has no, um, there's no possible redemption of that. There's nothing, they discern that there's nothing Usable or nothing sacred within that religion. In most of of Central Mexico, in the places where this book is situated, most communities saw fairly immediately that there was resonance. They recognized sacred power in Christianity, and then built continuity or a kind of integrated continuity from their own um, existing. Um, cosmological views, their own uh, ontologies, their own epistemologies so that they uh, but they discerned that there were parts that needed to be rejected <laughs> parts of the this imposed religion that that um, were not at the service of, of, of holy and, and sacred things and they di- they discerned that there were parts of it that were quite powerful and significant so um, that resonated. But even then, still perhaps needed some work, right, um, or needed to be to be um, altered. So, one of the things I'm showing is that, and I think you see this throughout the colonial period. But again, in a moment of crisis like this, um, cataclysmic uh, devastation become even more pronounced. Is a sort of conflicting uh, or contest over. Who who dictates um, the practice of Christianity, whether it's Spanish missionaries, priests, or bishops, or whether it's elders, uh, indigenous elders, say in in Mexican Catholic pueblos de indios. So that contest, I think, becomes becomes pronounced, especially pronounced in moments of crisis, and especially, you know, an epidemic. Um, a crisis of that scale creates the possibility for real tectonic shifts. I think we see that even in the last few years, uh, the way that things can be thrown open at the same time that there's this pushback to kind of re-entrench certain systems and structures and powers. So I think that there's a way that this particular crisis and this pandemic opened up religious possibilities and opened up Uh, room for Pueblos de Indios to assert uh, a certain authority uh, or reassert their authority over Christian practice, but cast very much in indigenous terms. So at the end of this text, uh, as you'll see, uh, it ends with uh, a church that's under the guardianship of indigenous principales or, or leaders in, in local communities.
0: Yeah, that, this sort of reminded me of, of some of what I've studied in like Chimayo in New Mexico, um, where, you know, you have this, this Catholic church that has this, you know, long history of pilgrimage and at different points, the Catholic church either chose not to send priests from, you know, uh, the Spanish empire, if you will, <laughs> um, to lead the church, um, and therefore sort of indigenous folks in the area who had sort of come to see themselves um, as Catholic, uh, they sort of had to sort of take the leadership role um, in that context. Um, so I, that certainly had some resonances um, since I focus a bit more on, um, I guess, North America. Um, but uh, what what are you to do when sort of the the, the structure of this um this larger entity, you know, sort of Spanish Catholicism doesn't necessarily uh, send all the resources to show you what, you know, uh, how they think of the religion, how they want you to interpret it, right? It opens up, as you said, um, quite a few possibilities to sort of <laughs> refashion in in ways that are usable, as you said, or, you know, resonate a bit more for your particular context.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think also, you know, it's, there was obviously sort of in different points of the history of Latin America, the sort of lack of, of clergy, right? And especially because um, it was not possible for indigenous or African-descended people to become clergy for uh, part of the colonial period. And so there was this shortage of, of clergy. At the same time in Mexico, there's, even when clergy are present, there there can often be, Quite a bit of sort of conflict right over who determines uh, so there, so my in my work I, I, I've sort of seen that in in Mexico the, the conflict is is less about whether or not communities are going to become Christian, but what it means what that what constitutes Christianity, what the parameters of Christianity are and who's in charge of it. So you you have communities who have very conflictual relationships with priests. You have communities who are driving priests out. You have priests who say, I can't work here anymore, right? So it's, it's a shortage, but there, it's also, uh, I would say, even something um, more active in terms of what's coming from many of these communities who continue to insist that they um, – knew how knew how Christianity was supposed to be practiced and knew uh, and were already expert in their relationship with the sacred right so they already w- understood um, what sort of rituals were were significant or important they 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 uh, they knew what it was to engage with religious images for example right and so they they bring a, a, an authority and they assert that authority and there that, that you can imagine um, sometimes created conflict or made things difficult for the, for the clergy who, who felt that to become Christian was to become a Spanish Christian. Right. And, and it had that sort of cultural dimension to it as well.
0: Sure. And mm-hmm. I, that relates to my next question because it's, you you can't you can't really talk about um, sort of Spanish Catholicism without talking about sort of the Spanish imperial project or colonial project. Um, so so you talk a bit about um, sort of the idea of creating sort of a Christian utopia in the Americas, um, and I'm wondering if you could talk about um, sort of how uh, the mortandad, sort of the the Great Death sort of impacted the colonial project, this utopian ideal. Um, And something that that stood out to me that I I had not read before, but makes sense once you read it, Um, you talked a bit about how sort of observers of the mortandad, you know, they thought that the epidemic might actually sort of be the end um, for Christianity in the Americas, it might actually, you know, sort of the the introduction of Christianity sort of mixing with this great death event might actually lead people to sort of move away from Christianity, whether indigenous or Spanish, because, you know, you certainly have many accounts represented in this book of, um, you know, Spanish uh, Catholics, you know, officials, monks, etc., who also were dramatically impacted personally, emotionally by seeing so much death and by sort of over time recognizing the role that they uh, may be playing in that.
1: Mm. Yes. So there's been a fair amount kind of written and some very definitive studies on the idea of a sort of millennial Franciscan millennial kingdom in the quote new world. Right. So there is a sense among the first generation of the first generations of missionary friars coming to the Americas that Sort of Christianity was in a sense in need of, of a renewal, of a dramatic renewal, that European Christianity had become compromised and corrupt, and that the quote unquote discovery of the Americas and the people who lived there represented this possibility for a new beginning. And the fantasy, it's it's I would say Spanish imperialism, Spanish colonialism is obviously quite different. Than British Protestant uh, colonialism in the Americas, the Spanish, they their intention was to create their their primary purpose was to create an indigenous church that was under Franciscan rule or under mendicant rule um, and ultimately under Spanish Catholic rule, right? And so this was a a, a utopian vision, and I I write about. Um, the, the Corpus Mysticum, the body of Christ, this idea that the the body of Christ was altered and expanded, um, that it, it was expanding to include indigenous people in the Americas, and that this was a body to which Spanish Christians and Franciscan belo- Franciscans belonged, um, and it was a body that was to be kind of an infinite expanding body of new indigenous Christian subjects who were going to be, it was a shared body and ultimately a body that also um, mirrored or was the the body of the literally reflected the body of Christ also. And uh, that's a, that is a for the Spanish, a utopian vision, right? And uh, a utopian Christian vision that that vision, I think you see dimensions of it throughout the... It could it persists to some extent. It, it doesn't completely go away throughout the colonial period. But after so many waves of, of death, like we could say this is the third, the pandemic I'm looking at, sort of third or fourth major um, period of, of population decline in the 16th century. Some of those original, the, 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 the oldest trends, the oldest Missionaries, we could say, like those who had been from the beginning in Mexico, uh, those who um, who had spent almost their entire lives and were now quite older, they they felt that with this last this particular epidemic, that Christianity in itself had come to its end in the in the quote new world um, in the Americas. That really there was there were not enough people remaining. There was, there's real strong uh, sort of, uh, you could say, missionary despair. There's also plenty of persistence, right? Uh, There's all kinds of, um, the the dynamics in the church are are complicated, but there's also a very palpable sense of despair in missionary writings from this period. And we see the most famous, one of the most famous um, missionaries of the 16th century in Mexico. Sahagun Bernardino de Sahagun saying I've lived through epidemics here I've I've myself was sick in the last one but we come to this and there's no future there's no road there's no path for the church uh, remaining in Mexico and it's best now that we move on to the Philippines to Asia to China and they say that really that's where the future of the church is so you see this um this sort of despair and um, and actually you see it, it, it being in the archive. It's very powerful because in the midst of these letters about the pandemic, you also see uh, some missionary letters about the epidemic. You also see this sort of um, newly emerging forming um, uh, mission, mission to Philippines, right? It's right there. So it's, it's from this, from this crisis, that now Mexico becomes more of a launching, a launching pad for mission Tip to Asia, and a place, the sort of staging ground for that. And you know, obviously, there I, I write about um, priests and bishops in this uh, book who, after this epidemic, kind of go about the work of continuing to move the church forward and with their vision of how the, the, the Catholic Church in the Americas can continue to survive. But I take very seriously that that sense that actually it was over and that this was a moment of of crisis for the history of Christianity in, in the Americas. And I take seriously that sense, you know, I think it's very easy in retrospect to feel that Christianity was somehow inevitable because of the violent force of imposition of European rule. But actually, throughout the 16th century, there was a, a sense among the Spanish of, of precarity, of, of this is a, a fragile thing, this is a vulnerable thing. And we see that in this epidemic crisis really come to its maximum articulation. And so I, 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 explore, I explore and, and probe Probe that idea of sort of this crisis, and um, and then look at the visions that emerge in terms of what a future American Christian um, church might look like.
0: Yeah, it's it's easy to, especially you know, five hundred years later, give or take, to view the Catholic Church as this sort of steamrolling entity you know, just bringing Christianity to the people, whether they wanted it or not. Um, but I, I think the picture you paint is, is far more nuanced. Um, and I think uh, we, we discussed off-air uh, Bishop uh, what, Medina Rincon and sort of how he very clearly said he was uh, struggling um, as, as somebody in the new world, but also um, he was really struggling with the colonial project and wanted to return to Spain and sort of wanted to live a more cloistered life in which he felt that um, Christianity was actually doing the work that um, I think he had signed up for. Um, so, so yes, I, I appreciated the nuanced picture uh, because, you know, it is so easy to just uh, reduce these extremely complex histories into, you know, sort of simplified narratives of, you know, Colonize, colonizer, conqueror, etc. Um, and I, you know, I, I certainly understand the impulse, but I'm not always sure that's helpful to actually understanding what happened during these time periods.
1: Yes, I, I Medina Rincon, who's the bishop of Michoacan, in the midst of this crisis, he he emerges to me also as a very interesting kind of historical figure because he seems, you know. One of the things that was interesting to me, actually, is is even as these missionaries, um, missionary writers, Christian theologians, and 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 um, priests are sort of, you know, they, they bemoan the epidemic, they they blame uh, colonial violence, they blame, they, they, you know, they kind of point fingers, but they they rarely see themselves as culpable, and that sort of sense of complicity, I think, is very much a modern a modern kind of positionality, right, um, vis-a-vis history and the self, perhaps, right? And so, but Medina Rincon seems to have this, I, I mean, he he has this sort of really radical sense of there was a right way to do this Christian evangelization, and there was a wrong way, and I've been, he writes to the king, I've written you so many times and I've told you this is a disaster happening here in terms of exploitation and violence and 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 now look, everyone is dying from this disease. And he says, no one listens to me. And so just let me go back to Spain. There's nothing left here. There's no, this is irretrievable. So he has this kind of distant kind of critique that I think even Bartolome de las Casas, who's the famous critic of colonial violence, um, Spanish critic in, in the same period or in this period, you know, he never comes to quite that sense, right? He, he remains invested in the project. Uh, whereas Medina Rincon is like, I don't want to be part of this. It's too broken. It's, it's, there's no, there's no way out of this. Um, and there's of course another bishop, Archbishop who you meet here, who's, the opposite, sort of fully complicit and fully aligned with the imperial vision. So you see that range even in terms of the Spanish.
0: Yeah, the the way you wrote um, Medina Rincon, he, he really came across as sort of the conscience of the Spanish Catholic Church in Mexico and in the Americas. Um, and Las Casas, you know, I, I don't know that many histories of the Americas, certainly Spanish and sort of indigenous interactions would, would be able to be written without his work. Um, but sometimes I think he's credited um, in a way that uh, maybe uh, somebody like Rincon should be credited as like truly understanding, um, you know, sort of what was going on during these times in a way that uh, shows a deep self-awareness of sort of the project they were all involved with
1: yes i i i see that and I saw that in in, in Medina and cohn's writing i um you know that he saw that the the church was so kind of compromised i i feel that i I'm, you know um i don't want to sort of be anachronistic too in what i'm attributing to him but but he do, does seem to recognize that the church is sort of complicit and compromised with the kind of imperial project in such a way that that it, it 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 it's not it doesn't have the capacity to extricate itself right that these are i see that in his actions and in his um and of course he's never released from his bishopric he's never released and he dies in michuacan
0: he does indeed um, <laughs> so so this makes me think of um I guess the portion of the book where you write about sort of hospitals, medical care, um, sort of uh, physical healing, as opposed to sort of the, the spiritual healing um, that is is discussed throughout the book um, and how, you know, the medical care, these hospitals that the Spanish um, sort of provided to communities, um, indigenous communities, that they uh they were, they were, in some ways, only necessary because of the mortandad. And they were sort of a response to sort of this, this uh, I don't know, this 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 other element that the Spanish had brought into these communities. And I, I'm wondering how you think of sort of the role of hospitals and medical care uh, provided by the Spanish to these communities, because it's that's definitely sort of a complex issue, because, you know, in some ways, I think you make the argument that the existence of these hospitals and, you know, these medical providers um, saved a number of folks from death in indigenous communities. And again, um, would they be as necessary <laughs> um, if the Spanish had not sort of arrived in the way that they did with obviously the sort of Colombian exchange, um, if you will.
1: Right. I think one of the things that's really obvious looking at this period is that the, the Spanish this first european colonial project in the americas is a modern project the spanish wanted this sort of they deployed their the uh, uh, they deployed medicine technology scientific knowledge at the service of this imperial project right and they wanted there to be the most sort of advanced hospitals on this landscape of the Americas. And at the same time, right, at, and at the same time, it's also sort of part of that missionary project as, as well. And one of the things I say is I, I have this sort of, you know, sort of hypothesis that in a way the church have been losing its control over hospitals to some extent in, in Europe at this time in the sort of spirit of modernization. But yet in, in Mexico, they actually resumed a, a, more total control over, over hospitals. And, and they are sort of necessitated by this ongoing health emergency that imperial rule has wrought. Right? And, and, Um, you know, and there's some of those hospitals that are more solidly under Spanish control, but there are also in Michoacan, these sort of smaller kind of more community clinics that are, uh, more solidly under indigenous control and control of local leaders. At the same time, a very small minority of afflicted people, of people who were sick ever secured any, or went to look for treatment in these hospitals, um, or, or, and of course, ultimately, they're a failure in terms of really being able to stop the tide of death. And I look at the the, the, the hospitals also through a sort of lens of sacrament and sacramentality, and the ways in which uh, the missionaries themselves would sort of, in their um, effort to care for the sick, move kind of very fluidly between what would be, appear to be a medical response and then one that's a sacramental response. So in a sense, you can imagine that people experienced medicine as sacrament, right? If it's, if it's being, for example, bloodletting is administered with uh, Eucharist, uh, last rites, or even baptism um, in sort of, you know, uh, one immediately following the other, that it, it becomes sort of sacramentalized. And that medicalization within these structures is, a form of Christianizing uh, people's bodies, right? That that to receive care within these Christian medical establishments was another um, another form of sort of um, evangelism and evangelism of bodies.
0: Yes, um, <laughs> this this section certainly made me think of um, sort of the connection between. Uh, sort of religious actors um, and the development of Western science and Western medicine, right? We now have this idea that, right, religion and medicine or science are like these separate entities and unentangled, right, which is not the history um, in in, certainly in the West, um, you know, however we want to define that or arguably in most communities throughout the world. Um, So I I think the the book did a good job of sort of (laughs) highlighting the entanglements Um, so I, you know, you, you talk about, uh, indigenous, uh, survivance and, um, I, I would hate to leave, uh, listeners with the idea that indigenous populations did not recover after the the pandemic. You've already highlighted that in one of your earlier answers. Um, but how did these, um, indigenous populations in Mexico recover? Um, and how did that recovery, like how did it impact sort of religious formation in those communities?
1: So the final sort of, I would say, culminating chapter of the book is uh, a chapter. So in the in the first um, chapters, I I focus more on the uh, the archival record of Spanish missionary writings and trying to read through those writings to access some. Um, understanding of what Mexican experience was in in the course of this. But in that final chapter, I work with uh, a series of indigenous authored maps that are produced in the immediate aftermath of this pandemic. So after the, uh, as the pandemic is coming to a close, the King of Spain basically um, sends out a survey where every community is to respond um, as to the state of their population, the resources that are available, so he's trying to map his um, holdings, right, his his uh, lands, and uh, this. So these responses are some of them um, a very clear window onto how pueblos de indios, these indigenous communities. Are understanding their past and their present in this uh, immediate aftermath of this crisis. And along with these surveys, there are a number of maps. These are these are famous, extraordinary um, maps uh, that are held um, now all over the world. There's few in Me- There's some in Mexico. There's some at UT Austin. There's some in Europe, um, in Spain. But they're indigenous-authored maps, drawn maps or paintings of communities. So I read these as um, against the way that they're typically read by art historians or Mesoamerican scholars, I read them as Christian covenants. I think that they are multivalent. They are complex pictographic drawings. They were completely useless to the king of Spain for purposes of rule. Um, um, but they are. I read them as um, post-cataclysmic covenants in which is depicted uh, a reiteration of indigenous territories and a reiteration, a reassertion of that these are um, continue to be unceded lands that are under control of indigenous leaders that are uh, empowered by uh, royal lineages that go back uh, generations. And that now these royal lineages and these uh, sacred uh, ancestral territories now encompass not just physical churches, but actually the church itself. And so that that so I'm reading them as suggesting that in the wake of this particular pandemic, there is a reassertion of these sovereign territories now recast as indigenous Catholic states, and that these territorialities are actually at least as persistent in the history of Mexico as the Spanish vision of a diocese. Now, interestingly, Spanish Catholic missionary dioceses often were forced in any case to align with um, these Territory; these territorial entities uh, that were pre-invasion geographies, but uh, the sort of local control over these territories, the reiteration of the territorial boundaries that you see in these maps, and then the clear depiction and representation of um, indigenous elders or principales who are clearly seen as being an authority over the communities and over the churches Within those communities, to me, constitutes a a vision for the future of the church in Mexico. And the Mexican church is arguably the oldest Christian church in the Americas. And so it's an originary, original kind of vision that um, I think um, continues to really shape Mexican Catholicism today in its practice and um, ethos.
0: Yeah, I I think it's worth pointing out that at least the last survey um, I looked at um, shows that I think 69% of Latin America uh, considers themselves Catholic um, in I think the study was in 2010, 2012, somewhere around there. So obviously, if, if the Mexican uh, Catholic Church uh, was the first, uh, yeah, the, their their legacy remains uh, not just in Mexico but throughout um, the Americas. Yeah,
1: and my argument is that, and and it's um, it's one of those arguments that's particularly pronounced when you're trying to make a, a point, right? You sort of. It becomes um, even more pronounced. But my argument is that Mexican Catholicism today is really the patrimony of those communities and not the Spanish friars or the bishops or the missionary
0: church. Right. I I think that that comes across um, in your book and certainly relates to my next question. Um, so (laughs) we've, we've sort of alluded to this before, but how do you think your book complicates the relationship between Mexican indigenous peoples and Christianity? You've already alluded to a a few uh, ways in which it complicates, but are there other ways, um, and sort of related, uh, like what were the entrenched myths as you call them of the Americas that you sought to dislodge? And they might, you know, those two questions I think relate to each other.
1: Right. I mean, that. Christianity is the product of Christian missionaries, of Spanish missionaries, uh, first and foremost, that it's a product of their labor, their, and that it reflects their desires and their vision. So that's one of those. The other is that Christianity in the Americas, and I think for many scholars of North American religion, that it really begins with the Puritans at Plymouth Rock. And uh, I'm reiterating what we, what we know when we pause to think about history is actually that's quite a bit later after these uh, the, the the period that that I'm I'm working on here, um, and then uh, again that that it's the, the the patrimony of these communities who uh, who discerned that that there was something retrievable or usable in this in, in this religion, and I'm trying really to um, not tell a story that perhaps would seek to kind of redeem that Spanish missionary effort and its imbrications with violent structures um, but rather one that that um, really grapples with and recognizes the degree of violence and the degree of of and the, the extent of that colonial cataclysm and its impact on people's lives on the one hand and then also the reality of uh, of the labor and and the effort that we see in 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 pueblos de indios in trying to actually see that this religion persists in their communities on their terms.
0: Yeah, I I think that's that's a really important point to make. Again, my my context is in North America, and you know, spending time in New Mexico, um, the idea that Christianity is sort of the the Spanish colonizing faith um, just rings hollow in many communities, but that, that can be hard for, for folks who are not part of those communities and don't know those histories to understand. Um, so I, I think you did a, a wonderful job of making that point. Um, so we're, we're getting close to the end, um, but uh, as, as I mentioned off air to you, and you know this better than I do, you started the research for this book um, in 2010, 2011, um, I cannot imagine that you uh, <laughs> you anticipated that the COVID-19 pandemic um, would be in full swing when your book was finally published. Um, so, so I'm wondering sort of how and in what ways um, has your research, um, has this book sort of impacted the way you view um, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic?
1: I think I've been attuned especially to ways in which it's created, this pandemic, the crisis of it, has created possibilities for reconstructing our society in ways that are more just, that, that the sort of things that can be um, broken open, uh, attachments shaken loose, and a sense of what else might be possible, but also to see how power also reasserts itself in an effort to deter uh, meaningful transformation or meaningful change. And I feel that uh, we won't know what the impact of COVID-19 is. We won't know what that is for decades and maybe even centuries because we, we can't yet see what the, what the ultimate, um, the things that it may shape or change or set in motion and how those will ultimately um, shape the future. And so I think I have that historian's lens of the kind of long durée over centuries. You say, well, I, I see how in 1576 with this epidemic, they were working so hard to try to understand what this means, why it's happening, how people can survive, um, or, try to understand the causes of it um, or the impacts of it. But yet, you know, 500 years later, things that were set in motion, you can see how the course that they ultimately took. And so I, I just have the sense that we actually don't know yet from COVID-19 um, how the, how our, our communities and how the, the world itself as a historical community will be shaped or defined by what's unfolding right now in front of us.
0: Yes. Yeah, so you, uh, you begin the book by quoting Rebecca Solnit. Um, and the, your last answer reminded me of her book, Hope in the Dark. And uh, <laughs> the idea that, uh, right, we, we do not know how uh, the future will unfold, even if we, we think we do, even if we have some indications that it could go in this direction. Um, I think sort of the, the lesson that historians and others have learned is uh, be prepared to be surprised because it is so hard to anticipate how you know one thing will interact with another and lead to sort of possibilities you didn't imagine. So, right, exactly. Um, so we've we've come to the end of our interview, um, but I would uh, appreciate if you would read um, from your, your book, since we've talked about it, I'd like to put some of, uh, the actual words from your lovely book, um, into, uh, the ether, into this podcast. Um, so if you wouldn't mind reading, uh, the last paragraph of page 176 and the first paragraph, page 177, from your conclusion.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. Indigenous communities and their descendants throughout Mexico have struggled to maintain honor. And tend to the sacred even in the midst of cataclysm, death, and social upheaval. They have sought continuity of practice and, per- and persisted especially in their care for the holy, even in its new and problematic Christian guise, where, against all odds, they have often perceived sacred power. Contemporary religious practice across the Americas reflects the pain and paradox of its colonial origins. The church did not emerge unscathed from imperial processes. As we know, it bears the marks, the wounds, or the scars, one could say, of its colonial origins. American Christianity remains in many contemporary articulations, an ecclesiax ex mortuis, a religion shaped and defined by the ravages of colonial rule most of all by the mortandad in its many forms as it unfolded over centuries. The Church of the Dead continues to haunt American landscapes, wherever inherited colonialist modes and mores persist. This is a church that has no future, a church that has been resoundingly criticized and condemned by some. Even as the Ecclesiax Mortuis built its sovereignty on a condition of death, The church also yielded to indigenous preferences, structures, and practices, or rather was compelled to yield, even in times of profound crisis. Centering indigenous communities and the historical origins of American Christianity is not a trope to proffer a romanticized portrait that erases, justifies, or mutes colonial violence or one that resolves or sentimentalizes the struggles of modern indigenous people. Rather, difficulty, complexity, and paradox are ever-present, and the colonial cataclysm remains fixed as the primary contextualizing fame, frame in this history. When the history of colonial trauma is retold, too often it is forgotten or ignored the fact that economic, political, and cultural violence was most often perpetuated by those who identified as Christian against other Christians, against indigenous adherents to the faith who nevertheless remained religious others within the structures of colonial rule.
0: Thank you, Jennifer Shepherd hughes Thank
1: you. That was my
0: guest, Jennifer Shepherd hughes author of Church of the Dead, The Epidemic of 1576, and The Birth of Christianity in the Americas, published by NYU Press in 2021. The book is now available online and in bookstores across the country. This concludes another episode of the New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Until next time.